This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. My guest for this 110th episode is Kentucky's Dr. Carmen Coleman. Boy, oh boy, have I been looking forward to this conversation. Back in April of this year, 2023, I finally had the chance to meet Dr. Carmen Coleman in person at the Deeper Learning Conference held at High Tech High. I felt like I had just met the Jane Goodall of student-driven learning and deeper learning. Dr. Coleman is Kentucky bluegrass through and through. Her first teaching job was at the elementary school her mom taught at, and she attended. Not only has she been a teacher, principal, college professor, and superintendent in Kentucky, she was the chief academic officer for the Jefferson County Public Schools and is now the chief of transformational learning and leading for the Ohio Valley Education Cooperative. Professor John Nash at the University of Kentucky wrote the following wonderful words about Dr. Coleman for this episode. Quote, I often say that the only barrier preventing schools from reaching their full potential is the will of the adults leading them. It's not an overly complicated concept. You simply have to want to make a difference. Carmen Coleman is living proof of this principle. In the early 2000s, leaders in Kentucky who aspired to make a difference had to venture beyond state lines to witness engaged, creative, and deep learning in action. When I met Carmen Coleman in 2011, she was superintendent of Danville Independent School District in Danville, Kentucky. She had been on a journey across the country, visiting visionary schools that dared to redefine the traditional education paradigm. In the ensuing years, Carmen led critical conversations in Kentucky, posing questions like, what should a diploma mean? And what's the system's role in achievement gaps? Then she would translate the answers into sensible yet powerful demands of the system, such as students will experience real-world learning, teachers will act as facilitators, the community will be engaged, education will be equitable, student voice will be paramount. Then she inspired schools to implement those things. Now, in 2023, the script has been flipped. Educators flock to Kentucky to see what school could be and should be. This transformation is largely attributable to Carmen Coleman. Carmen and I share a strong abiding interest in the idea that students can and should be co-designers of what school could be. And for that, I am filled with gratitude for my personal connection with her. For three years, we were colleagues at the University of Kentucky. And in that time, we worked to instill confidence in Kentucky school leaders to see students, not just as recipients of knowledge, but as active collaborators in their own learning and their own journey. Our collaboration greatly influenced the through line in my book, Design Thinking in Schools. These last 12 years, I found not just a colleague, but someone who inspires me to continue to advocate for meaningful change in education. I'm certain I'm not the only one who feels this way. The entire state of Kentucky is fortunate to have Carmen's visionary leadership." End quote. So what listeners are you about to hear in this conversation? I can say with conviction that you should fasten your deeper learning seatbelts because there are 4th of July fireworks in your immediate future. 
And now, here's my conversation with Dr. Carmen Coleman. Carmen, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Oh, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. That's awesome, Carmen. I've been really looking forward to this. So let's begin with a couple of fun background questions. So Carmen, here in Hawaii, where I am based and produce this podcast, we in education have a treasured saying, which is makahana kaike, meaning in Hawaiian, in doing, one learns. So in what ways was your 4-H club experiences outside of school when you were growing up an illustration of all the elements of makahana kaike in doing one learns? And this is your moment, Carmen, to talk about your dogs and ponies and horses and all that good stuff. Yeah. So when I was younger, like elementary student age, I'd always loved animals and in in my community, 4-H was a, you know, provided great opportunities for kids and we could decide the areas in which we wanted to focus. Mm. So for me, I wanted to focus on horses and dogs. And those experiences for me were really, have really been key as an adult in informing my beliefs about what school needs to be and what elements really need to be present for, for students to learn. So when I think back, I remember, for example, my 4-H horseback riding instructor, and she was this wonderful, but, but sort of stern and could even be kind of gruff, but in a very loving way, lady mm. who you know, we went to the barn and the horses were dirty, like they might be covered with mud. Well, she was like, you know, you can't just get on them like this. What are you going to do? And so she led us through figuring out, okay, we've got to, we've got to clean them up, brush them off. And then, all right, now, now what? Well, I guess we need a saddle. All right, so here's, let's go get a saddle. Now put it on. All right, now how do you think that's going to stay secure? <laughs> mm. And so there was a whole process of discovery. And the same with my dog instructor. And and we figured it out. She, she gave us enough to help us figure it out when we needed it. But I've realized that she was brilliant in her approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds very much like well, actually, just the opposite of here, let me give you a lecture on how this all works, and then you'll do it. Right. Actually, it was just letting you dive into it right away, right? I mean, it sounds like it was an immersion right. program of sorts. And so, Carmen, you, you shared with me a, a wonderful story about a dog you trained named Lily and the parallels between her story and the kids in school we often talk about as needing intervention because of behavior issues. So what is Lily's story and what happened when you and your fellow dog trainers were allowed to, quote, explore the obstacles before the training? And, and if, I, if I can squeeze in a, a follow-up question now, what are your thoughts about how animals and humans learn together and ways schools might incorporate what we know about how this happens? Sure. So something that I, my, my interest in both horses and dogs has continued to be something that I'm passionate about as an adult. And so something that I have wanted to do forever is to learn to do agility mm. with a dog, which is the, the obstacles, right? So you've seen, you know, the dogs that they, they go really fast through the tunnels and, they get on the teeter-totter and then they might climb up a high walkway. And so they, they go through all these obstacles and they're amazing. And so I decided last fall, you know what? I'm going to take, so I have a Pomeranian named Lily. Mm. I'm going to take Lily. I think Lily would love agility. Mm. Now, what's important to know about Lily is that she's had basic obedience. Lily knows how to sit, how to lay down. She can do all the things when she wants to. 
But Lily can also be very difficult. She's like a Tasmanian devil sometimes. <laughs> and she, I mean, she can be completely crazy. Mm. She aggravates the other dogs. She's, I mean, she is something. So I, I go to agility. I show up for the first class. And then there were several of us there with, with our dogs. And we were all in the beginner class. And what the trainer did right off the bat, she said, okay, you all, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your dogs out on the course and I want you to let them smell the obstacles. I want you to let them climb on the obstacles. I don't want you to force it. I want you to just let them explore and I want you to treat them too. When they, when they do like get on the obstacle or give them a treat, let them know that the obstacle is good. And so here we were, you know, right off the bat out on the obstacles. Like I, I have always loved watching dogs go through those tunnels or, or get on a teeter totter and watch it go down, you know, and, and it's so much fun. And Lily got to do that. We mm. got to do all those. We got to do the tunnel. We got to do the teeter totter. And I had this realization, you know how we are as teachers, everything makes us reflect, I think, yes. sometimes on our work. And, mm-hmm. and I thought, you know what, if Lily had been a student in many, many schools, Lily would never have gotten to see the obstacles. Right. Lily would have had to work on some more basic obedience. And she does need to do that. Let me tell you, but she has also gotten better at things like come when I call her mm-hmm. because she loves to do the obstacles. Mm-hmm. And I think there is, there's just such a powerful parallel there that I was just struck by. In fact, I talked about it to any group that I talked to at <laughs> all because I, I thought, you know what? I mean, here this is dog training, right? And but but look what look what's working. She sees what she sees why what she's learning matters. Mm. Now I know if I don't come when you call me, I don't get to do the obstacles. And I love that. Mm. I mean, she made that connection, right? Mm. I couldn't talk to her. You can't. I mean, you can talk to him, but it's like Charlie Brown's teacher talking to him, you know. So. Yeah. There's this inherent desire to know why what why we're doing what we're doing, mm. and it's and that becomes such a motivator. Mm. Mm. So yeah, I, I appreciated my my dog trainer's approach to immersion. Mm. And what about to the more general notion that we we and our animals seem to live separate lives, meaning that we go to school and the animals are wherever they are and that we only have extended contact and learning time with animals like after school, like 4-H or, or clubs or things that you do. Is there, is there a model out there that says that, that we can mix the animals and humans together a little bit more and that there, there's learning to be done there? I absolutely believe that if I could have for the, for the sessions, the professional learning sessions that I helped with last fall, Mm. I kept thinking, I want to bring them to this place where I took my agility classes. I want to bring them here with a dog (laughs) and I want them to go through this. And then I want them to reflect as we go upon the parallels. Mm. There's so much to be learned Mm. there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Carmen, I just finished two books. I've been able to arrange my life over the last few months so that I actually get a day off, which is fantastic. Amazing. (laughs) I get Fridays off from everything and I'm I'm not allowed to be on any computers or any screens that's self-imposed, but I've turned them into reading Fridays. And I've just finished two books. One is Michael Horn's Reopen to Reinvent, and the other is a book called Street Data. And both of those books speak very clearly to the idea that what you're expressing here is a more open, a more openness on the part of educators to look for all the ways that we can engage kids, including this sort of quote unquote, taking them out to the obstacle course and having 
you know, or giving them a chance to sniff the obstacles or play on them. And, you know, instead of just an immediate sort of intervention where you end up in the principal's office, right? And so I love that. I love that. So so that's perfect segue, Carmen, to our moment here where we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the deep end of the pool. So one of the great blessings of being the host of this podcast is the rabbit holes guests send me down. And you sent me 5,000 miles (laughs) down a rabbit hole by sharing a crazy, awesome moment in your life, which was visiting the iSchool in New York City, which I had not heard of. And I'm going to quickly read part of their history, which is posted to their website. So, quote, in 2006, the idea was planted among Department of Education leaders that New York City needed to develop a high-tech school that could provide a model for 21st century learning. Several visions of this model were developed and the search for a school leader began. In January of 2008, two women, Elisa Berger and Dr. Mary Moss, were selected as a co-leadership team to start the school. While the Department of Education's vision included technology, specifically video conferencing and distance learning, The charge to the new leaders was to develop a model that would rethink the high school experience for the 21st century, end quote. So Carmen, take us in the doors of the iSchool and share your impressions and observations of that day. And like, what did you see and hear and feel at the iSchool and why is its story important? And I also wonder if you had a different reaction, different feelings during your visit to high-tech high for the first time. Yeah, it's really interesting because the timeline on those two visits, they, they were close. So I had gone to high tech high school first. Mm. And of course, I mean, I was blown away, right? I was blown away. I mean, the student work was amazing, is amazing. And I, I mean, San Diego is perfect. It's beautiful. And mm. so, of course, I thought high tech high was just just a utopia almost mm. for school and for what I wanted it to be. But I, I have to be honest. And in the back of my mind, I still thought, you know what? But my folks in Kentucky are, I mean, this is a charter. Mm. So that's, you know, that's an yep. immediate and it's in San Diego. So that seems so far away. Now, what I knew was that there was nothing stopping us from doing all the things they were doing mm-hmm. at High Tech High. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Right. But the iSchool, it, it was very different. So the iSchool, first of all, is in New York City. I went there on a very gray, rainy, like 50 degree day. Mm. I gave the cab driver the address and he looked at me like, are you sure? Mm. And I thought when I tell the story, I always think about the story about the city mouse and the country mouse. And I think he was thinking country mouse, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) this is where you want to go. But I was like, yes. So he pulls up in front of this very old building so, you know, high tech high, here's this kind of sprawling, beautiful campus, lots of green space. Yeah. And so we pull up, you know, in front of this old building and, and I go into the lobby and they say, okay, you're up on the, you need to go to the 10th floor and the elevator isn't working. Mm. Okay. So I go up to the 10th floor and I mean, already, this is very different. I mean, from the weather, everything about the, the environment was very different. But when I got to the 10th floor and, and the doors open, it was like that scene when Dorothy wakes up in Oz. Yes. You know, everything is in color. Yeah. Everything was bright and, and very vibrant. Kids were working together talking. They were, I started walking through. At that point, there was not an adult, another adult with me. The kids were very accepting. They were, you know, telling me what they were doing. So I came upon this group 
kind of in an open space and they were Skyping with a group of students of similar age, I could tell, but it was very obvious they were in another country. Mm, mm -hmm. And in listening to the students and the questions the students at iSchool were asking, they were asking those students what their opinions were of America. Mm, Wow. They were asking them, and then they started getting specific, asking them what they knew about 9-11. Wow. What have you been told about that? What? Well, you, as you might imagine, those conversations were, I mean, the kids said things that were really difficult for right. me to hear and hard for the students to hear. And But the students were very gracious. I could tell that they, they really were curious and they really were working hard to understand and learn. So Mm. then a teacher pulls me aside and the teacher said, all right, let me give you some context. My students are serving as partners with the Ground Zero Museum Board. Wow. Right. Their task is to recommend artifacts for that museum. And she said, I realized they had no perspective beyond what they've been told, you know, first of all, the, these students at that time were, were babies when 9-11 happened. So they, you know, they didn't remember it. Yeah. And they just knew their own perspective. And I thought, mm. okay, wow, my students aren't doing this kind of work. <laughs> yeah. And, but interestingly, despite how different that was, despite how different the, the campus, the building, the New York was from San Diego and high tech high, right. the kind of work that the kids were doing was, was very similar. Right. Very real. Right. Real work. Right. And what year was this, Carmen? So this was in, I want to say this was about 2010. Wow. Yeah. And so what you were seeing is almost a preview of maybe the best that we saw as a result of the pandemic, because here's a school, remarkably in 2008, that's focused on video conferencing and distance learning, but 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 deeper learning, right? Wow. And it also reminds me, Carmen, one of my previous guests, just recently I had Jeff Holty, who is the learning director at Liger Leadership Academy in Cambodia. And the last thing that we talked about in that conversation was his notion that the whole world is your resource and that the pandemic really brought that home for us. And, you know, as you took us in the doors and described those kids talking, I got goosebumps. It was just like, this is what learning could be, right? Yes. Yes. So, okay, so so perfect segue then to this last question before we go to our first break. So, Carmen, there is a wonderful Getting Smart podcast where the host, Tom Vander Ark, interviews national education thought leader Scott McLeod. And Tom's first question is, what is deeper learning? So, first of all, I hope no one accuses me of asking overly massive questions out of the gate because Tom's first question really takes the cake. But Tom inspired me to ask you the same question. So, Carmen Coleman, what is deeper learning to you? You know, I've had lots of practice with with articulating that over the last several years. And I have I have landed on most simply, it is the learning you remember. Mm. And that's where I always start with people. So let's wow. think about learning that you remember, right? For me, it starts with my 4-H experiences. Yeah, Those learnings really stood out to me. And then, and then when you dissect those and really analyze what made up those experiences, it's all the things that you see in lists of deeper learning attributes, right? Yeah. It's authenticity. Mm-hmm. It's having, you know, meaningful tasks, uh, real, real audiences, not just work for a teacher or, or the class, but um, you're really doing something for a true purpose mm. um, that matters. 
And when you do something like that, you remember. Like I, I remember Carmen when I was in high school for me, well, middle school and high school were kind of, uh, I hate to say it this way, but kind of a waste of time. I didn't remember anything. I don't remember much of anything, but I do remember that when one marine biology teacher in high school assigned us a project, but it was a project of our choice, my brother Paul and I attempted to clean a reef on the bay that we lived on, had been overrun by invasive algae. We attempted to clean that reef. We failed miserably because the algae was way stronger than us. But I remember every minute of that experience. Mm -hmm. And that's just so, so I love that sort of just zeroing in on that, which we remember. And then, so Carmen, what's then the parallel to the skills part? Like I, it's about remembering, doing those things that cause us to remember. And I can imagine those kids who are serving on the board of of the 9-11 Museum are going to remember everything about that, right? What's the skills part of it? You know, I think I think that is such an important question because I think in schools for so long, you know, we have only focused on the academics, which granted are very important, but I think equally important is that we're intentional about the skills that we have to combine with mm-hmm. that academic knowledge. And so those kids in New York were collaborating. They were communicating. They were problem solving. Mm. They, you know, all the things. And really, as someone who's had to have difficult conversations at times with people because of the roles that I've been in, I I often call those the fireable skills. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's why people struggle. Mm. It is typically not that they don't have the content knowledge they need to do whatever they're they're tasked with doing. It's that they lack those skills, those durable skills. Mm. And I think those have to be just as intentionally taught and learned and reflected upon. Mm. And also professionally developed in terms of being a guide, a mentor, a coach. And as a teacher as well. And I think before we go to break, Carmen, I just want to note that, yes, there are those fantastic critical thinking skills, collaboration, teamwork, all those. But in that particular context, I'm thinking about curation and that how you can carry the skill of curation throughout your life. Your life is something that you curate, right? And so, so there they are, curating and what a magical yes. moment that must have been. I, I just love that story. And thank you for taking us into the iSchool in that way. So that's great. Yes. So, hey, everyone, we've been talking with Kentucky's Dr. Carmen Coleman. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi friends, this is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be. As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. 
Everyone, we are back with Dr. Carmen Coleman, the former chief academic officer for the Jefferson County Public Schools in the great state of Kentucky, and now the chief of transformational learning and leading for the Ohio Valley Education Cooperative. So Carmen, what I'm about to do is likely the craziest thing I've attempted on this podcast, but what the heck, why not go for it? All right, so Two Revolutions published at their site a four-part blog you wrote on the transformation of the Jefferson County Public Schools, which, and surely the gods were looking down on the moment, I read on the 4th of July in this 2023 year. So I texted you that your blogs were akin to a declaration of independence, a statement of the deeper learning aspirations of everyone, teachers, learners, staff, etc., on your various teams in your previous role uh, in the Danville Independent Schools District, which has about 1,800 students, and then your current role back then with the Jefferson County Public Schools, which have about 100,000 students. So the following questions are, are framed by the fact that I read your blogs on the 4th of July in 2023. So here's the first one. There is a through line in your four blogs that suggests you were declaring independence from the way things have been for more than 100 years in education. And I wonder if it's a fair statement to say that in both Danville and JCPS, you all decided that separation from years of rule by a benevolent king, meaning the factory model of education, was the right pathway forward, that you were, by doing what you were about to do, declaring the start of a new nation, of a new thing, and a grand experiment in teaching and learning. That is exactly right. I would say that is very true. I mean, we just decided we've got to put a stake in the ground here. Our kids are more important than this. And once you see what school can be, once you get a glimpse into places like high-tech high school, like the iSchool, mm. you can't go back. I don't know how anybody goes to those places and ever goes back. Yeah. And so I guess one way I want to ask this then is that when you read the Declaration of Independence, there is the lofty part that's at the beginning. And then Thomas Jefferson, with help from Ben Franklin, starts to list out all the grievances against the king, and they go on for pages. And it feels as if you all were sort of waking up to the idea that there were grievances that you had against maybe the rote testing or against the way that the schools were being classified as failing schools and things like that. Is that a fair way of looking at how you all were thinking of yourselves and then you began to think about this as Independence Day? I think that is very fair. We, you know, some things had happened for me even before Danville, a, a quick story. One of those was I was the supervisor, director of elementary schools in another district here in Kentucky. And the superintendent and the board made it possible for all elementary schools to have a world language teacher. Mm. And I just thought that was incredible. I mean, we, you know, schools couldn't afford that on their own. And when I went to my principal's, you might imagine what they said. That sounds great, but when are we going to do that? That's not tested. Mm -hmm. And I could have heard myself saying that same thing years before. I understood where they were coming from, that high stakes accountability is no joke. Yeah. But that was the beginning for me of thinking we are playing this game and the, those who are going to pay for it are our students. And, and we can't do this anymore. Mm. I mean, we've got to, so I always talk about it as turbulence. Mm. We've got to get above the turbulence. The turbulence is going to be there. It's always going to be there. But I believe we can get above it. Mm. And I believe if we get above it and get this right, the turbulence won't make us so motion sick. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're letting the turbulence drive us. Mm, wow. and, and we are motion sick. Mm. And that hit me flying back from high tech high school. In fact, there was turbulence. And I thought, this is the way 
we are feeling in schools, like we're at the mercy of whatever the next accountability system is going to be that's going to grade us or label us. And, and, and we've got to get a handle. We've got to get back to what do we believe? What do we know? And, and what outcomes do we really want for our kids and build the system mm. that will get us there? So that's, that's a perfect segue then to the, to my second question, which is that, Carmen, the Declaration of Independence is really very special in many ways, not the least of which is it's a statement of a previously unstated truth at that point in the late 1700s that all men are created equal and it was time to dissolve allegiance to the previous system. So as you and your various colleagues and partners in both Danville and later in Jefferson County began your work, like how developed were the truths about teaching and learning and student engagement. So I, I kind of got the feeling from your blogs that you all decided to unmoor from the dock and set sail, but a somewhat vague destination was way over the horizon and the weather, as you said a second ago, would be likely very stormy, if that makes sense. Yes. We, in fact, you know, I had such a forward-thinking board in Danville, hmm. and so they really gave us permission and wanted us to explore and learn. And they went with us. Mm. And so we would come back together, whoever had gone and visited or whatever. I just kind of had an open invitation, you know, and, and let's come back together. Let's talk about what we saw, what we learned, mm. and what does it mean for us? And I remember after, you know, trips to high tech high, to the iSchool, you know, we came back together and said, okay. And I remember saying the board chair was sitting there. We're ready for the grand reopening. Wow. What is that? What does that mean? And we all sat there and, you know, we didn't know where to start. You know, I, at first it was like, well, okay, does this mean that we're going to go full project-based learning? Mm. Is that what this is? Does it mean our kids are going to do presentations of learning? Are we going to do more performance assessment? Like what, what is the bigger takeaway here? And that is when at that table, someone asked the question, what if we start with what does our diploma mean? Mm, wow. What does a diploma mean? How brilliant, right? Yeah, what that a great question. Yeah. What does our diploma mean? What is a diploma? What are we promising the community, mm. our students, each other? And we had just read the Global Achievement Gap. Ah, yes, Tony Wagner. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that we just on a piece of chart paper started making a list. Mm. All right. Here's what we want it to mean. You know, when we went around the table that day and tried to answer that question, and I always challenge people to do this. What does your diploma mean? Mm. Everybody can say what they hope yeah. it means, but consistently the answers we give are things like, it means they can't come back. It means they've served their time. Yeah. I mean, most literally, what does it mean? And so we just made a list of more aspirational. This is what we want it to mean. And so let's start here. And we didn't. We didn't do a lot of wordsmithing. We didn't do any of that. Yeah. We just said, this is it. Let's start here and let's build the system that will lead to those outcomes. So what does that look like? Right. And a meaningful diploma, something that you can look at and say, wow. Okay, right. so perfect segue then to my next question, which is that you wrote as you gained success in your efforts notable education media like the Harvard Education Letter, the PBS NewsHour, and National Public Radio showed up to document what was going on in your part of Kentucky. So similarly, Carmen, after July 4th, 1776, the eyes of the world were on America. And I wonder, Carmen, if it's even possible to describe what it felt like as Danville and then later JCPS were being featured on these nationally read stories and watch programs. Like what was the impact of the attention being paid as you all attempted an education revolution here. 
You know, at first it was so funny because I remember getting a message from someone named Kat McGrath. Hmm. And my secretary gave me the message. She says she's from PBS NewsHour. Wow. And I'm, you know, as superintendent, I mean, you're like, okay, <laughs> what, it's, what is this? And I, I thought it was a joke. Mm. And she said, John Marrow wants to do a feature on your district. And I was like, are you kidding me? Mm. And so it was, it was very surreal because, I mean, we were just trying to figure it out. And I remember I kept thinking, gosh, we're not really even doing anything very different yet. Yet look at the attention. People are dying for schools to be different. Yeah. But it, it was so wonderful because what a celebration for our community, for the students, for our teachers. I mean, we felt kind of famous. Mm. You know, the kids were very, very proud. Mm. It was really incredible, such a special time, mm. you know, and such wonderful support for for the work. Tom Vander Art did several stories. Yeah. So it was just fantastic. So it sounds like it really put fuel in your collective gas tanks when that was happening oh, and yeah. also gave you something to aspire to, which is how do we get this story told right if you will. And I did learn right. Carmen later, I actually had a conversation last week with a, a 40 year educator in Washington state who talked about how that video that you shared with me where John Merrow, you know, did the segment on the PBS NewsHour actually had an impact on him that the book that he subsequently oh, wow. wrote was very much shaped by the fact that he saw what he saw. It's as if, you know, a delegation came from France to see what this emerging democracy was way over the over the ocean, right? Yeah. I'm just amazed by this. So, okay, so last question in this crazy sequence. So, yeah. Carmen, the, the history of the United States in some ways begins after July 4th, 1776 and the Declaration of Americans had the presence of mind to document the unfolding story in all sorts of ways, from pamphlets to volumes of books and speeches. And you shared with me something called the Jefferson County Public Schools Backpack for Students of Success Skills, right? Mm -hmm. So fair warning to our listeners, if you go to this site, let your family know you will not be back for at least a week, because that's kind <laughs> of what happened to me. So Carmen, I want to focus on just one backpack video from this vast library in which you all documented your emerging journey, your education revolution, if you want to call it that, and your learning. And the video is the work of Mady, a student at Lane Elementary. So first, yes. I wonder if you can explain Mady's video in the context of the overall backpack initiative. And second, how is Mady's presentation of her backpack emblematic of what it means to engage in assessments for deeper learning? Like, How did you and your colleagues make the decision to document learning even as you were just starting to build the infrastructure for deeper learning, which is the part that I find just remarkable? Yes. So I had a wonderful communications team in JCPS, and, and we really went about this as a district. I mean, everybody was focused on this. This was the work. And early on, one of the things that, well, it continues to be very important to show is what do we mean when we say evidence of learning? Mm. That is very different than assessment right. in our minds, right? And so that's one of the things we tried to do is really shift the conversation. So what do we mean when we say evidence of learning? What kinds of things do we want to see? So we tried very hard to capture many, many students, maybe being one who is adorable, and, and have them talk about the different pieces of evidence of learning or artifacts in their backpacks, their digital, that was their digital portfolio. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Mady had to, as a fifth grader, do a public defense right. to show, you know, where she, how she had grown 
academically and in those success skills, we call them. But we focused on several different students to have them talk about, so what kinds of things are you putting in your backpack and where are you putting it and why? Mm. It's very hard, Carmen, to even describe to our listeners just how vast the site is that has all of these defenses and all of these these videos and bits of evidence that are answering that question. But then on top of that, you also developed a backpack for teachers as well. So how did that decision get made and how did that develop from the very beginning? Yes. So one of the things that I think we struggle with everywhere is this, (laughs) this abundance of resources that is a blessing and a curse, right? And so the teacher backpack was different in that students added to their backpacks. The teacher backpack was an effort to provide a one-stop shopping place Mm. for teachers to go for the resources that we as a district had decided were especially important. Mm -hmm. So it, it was also an effort you know, talk about going down a rabbit hole, teachers pay teachers, there's all kinds of resources out there that may or may not be the best quality. Right. And so we wanted at least a one place where our teachers all knew to go Mm. to find what they needed and, and what we were recommending. So a way of curating high quality resources. Wow. That's so remarkable. And I keep coming back to the idea, Carmen, that you you all decided to do that at the very beginning. And too many times I've seen where there have been wonderful, deeper learning initiatives, but the part about the assessments for deeper learning or the evidence of learning is the backpack, if you will, is sort of forgotten until later, or it, it, it's as if it's supposed to happen later, when in fact it really needs to be one of the very first things that you do. I just yeah. love that, and I'm glad our listeners are getting to hear it. So look, I'm going to squeeze in one more question here before we go to our second break, <laughs> based on your blog. So in your four-part blog for Two Revolutions, you wrote, and I quote, There are times when not knowing or understanding the full scope of your context is a gift. This allows you as a leader to make bold moves without considering the complexities or the history that might get in the way, end quote. So I wonder, before we go to break, Carmen, if you can both elaborate on this thought and provide a specific example, perhaps, of where not knowing the full context turned into a gift. Mm-hmm. So JCPS is certainly an example of that, you know, and I always tell new superintendents, you have a window of time that is so beautiful because you don't know, you truly don't know some of the things you don't know mm-hmm. about the community, about the context, about what's been problematic in the past, what hasn't. And you can be very pure at that point in your vision and you make it happen. You don't have to worry about what this board member is going to think or what that board member is going to think. Or, you know, JCPS has a very powerful teachers union. Mm. They were key in our success there. They really thankfully shared the belief system and had really initiated some of that early on before I came to JCPS. So they were partners. But I didn't know things like you really need to process anything you're going to do with the union and with, Mm. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know any of that. I just ran. We just ran. And what I knew is that it was really important. You know, it, it makes me sad when districts spend a lot of time wordsmithing their graduate profiles or they... You know, because the kids are sitting here today. Yes. Let's make an impact on them today. And I knew what people needed to see and hear were stories about what kids could do, our kids in JCPS. And that's all I was focused on. Mm. So let's highlight what kids are capable of and let's put that in a bright spotlight. Mm. And, and let's, we didn't worry 
about all the, I didn't even know what I needed to be worried about. Yeah. Yeah. It's a beautiful moment. Wow. That is a beautiful moment indeed. That's awesome. And so perfect segue to our second break, Carmen. Hey, everyone. We have been talking with Dr. Carmen Coleman. Stay with us. We will be back in a flash. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at UNR. ULR.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Dr. Carmen Coleman, the Chief of Transformational Learning and Leading for the Ohio Valley Education Cooperative in Kentucky. So Carmen, before we go or or get out of the deep end of the pool, a couple more meta questions. So you shared that there is a big meta question on your mind. And I want to preface this topic by sharing a quick story. So back in 2017, early in the timeline of Ted Dintersmith's many trips to Hawaii, I took him to Maui to tour a school called Pomaika'i Elementary. And it turns out this school was a so-called arts-infused school, meaning almost everything that happened with these 800 kiddos teaching and learning-wise happened through the lens of the arts. It also happened that the school's principal was away that day, so we got to have an unguarded conversation with a group of campus teacher leaders who talked about the concept of shared leadership and how they were working to ensure that a change in principle or a principal's priorities or state leadership or the politics of the day would not jeopardize the arts-infused approach, which everyone in the community was bought into. So during my prep for this conversation, a theme, a thread, a through line, if you will, emerged, which is that you are intently focused now on the sustainability of deeper learning momentum in Kentucky. So here's a two-part question. Let's say, for a variety of reasons, momentum is gained and strong. What are the factors, the elements that undermine momentum? And how do we, in all the 50 states, make reimagining learning stick? I know this is a huge and hard question. Boy, if I can solve that, I'll be in great shape. (laughs) So what gets in the way of the momentum? Even now in Kentucky, where we have what Michael Fullen calls systemness, we have so much support for this kind of work from the commissioner to the state board to the co-ops We've got this statewide, united, we learn. I mean, the conditions couldn't be better. Mm -hmm. However, also from the State Department of Education, we have the group that goes out, that gives schools, does the audits, you know, after test scores come out. And so we're still labeling schools. We're still putting this cloud over the school that... I mean, as long as we continue that, it makes it very scary for people to think about change. Right. Even though logically, you often want to say, but 
you know, so what is working? What is it that you want to hold on to, but it still feels safe? We've got to be ready for this test. So it just becomes really difficult. I mean, I've been in in rooms where principals are told as a result of audits that they they have been found not to have the capacity to lead. Mm. That is real stuff. Yeah. That is devastating. And so we have to find our way to a system that does not ostracize and label schools like the one we have now is doing. I think to get there, we have to do a much better job with helping our broader communities understand why this is so important. Mm. You know, I think if we can come together with business communities, Mm -hmm. when the business sector starts to ask for it, it'll come along a lot faster. Mm. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. And, and we see that in communities where, you know, the business leaders get behind the movement. And so I think we as educators have to really be very clear about the message, mm. the why and why it matters to them. Mm-hmm. You know, Carmen, two thoughts about that. I, I love that idea. And I think that that might be part of the the secret sauce is the in Hawaii, where I'm based, we call it pilina or relationships. And that when you develop those really strong, thick relationships with your business community, your nonprofit community, all of those places where learning can happen, you perhaps ensure that when the winds get really high and, and the weather is turbulent, you'll be able to sustain yourselves in a deeper learning sense through that kind of turbulence. And I I have a specific example, like this is like going back to your iSchool moment. When Ted and I came on campus at Pomeka'i Elementary, the very first classroom that we visited, this is so incredible, Carmen. We, We witnessed fifth graders working on a theater production where each of the individual students was an element in the table of elements. They were learning chemistry. And the kids were going to act out this piece of theater where the different elements were interacting with each other. And there was a very real fear on the part of the teacher leaders that at some point the winds would would start whipping up, you know, in terms of what the state was expecting. And that the principal would say, well, you know, our test scores are not high enough. We need to drop this and we need to go back to that. And so obviously with an arts-infused school like Pomaikai, they had tremendous relationships with people in the community. And that could be part of what that does. So, okay, so that's a perfect segue then to Mm -hmm. my next question, which is, Related, last year I had the opportunity, Carmen, to interview Hawaii's then outgoing Governor David Ige for this podcast. And one part of that conversation focused on school boards and his role over eight years in office building Hawaii's current Board of Education. We have a system by constitutional amendment that allows the governor to appoint the Board of Education rather than having an elected board. So you noted in your resume that while in the Danville district, you worked on deeper learning initiatives, and you talked about this earlier, with the backing of a, quote, forward-thinking board. So what are your thoughts about appointed boards versus elected boards? And what is the role of a school board in innovation And how in America do we get more, a lot more, Carmen, forward-thinking boards? How How do we get there? I think it's important that as as leaders that we make a very conscious effort to educate our board. I think we don't do a very good job of that. Mm. And if all they're reading about are about books that people want to ban and, you know, the political rhetoric, then they may not have any other exposure to even think any differently. And so I believe we have to show them a different side and and we have to be really good at that. 
Mm. Gosh, it just depends. I mean, I think elected boards can be problematic. We know that. Appointed boards can be problematic. Yep. You know, now, so Kentucky, you may know this, has just passed some legislation where the state commissioner, although he's hired by the board, he that appointment, that hiring has to be approved by a full majority of the Senate. Mm. And so that could get really bad. Right. One of the things I do in presentations and, and when I speak is to have people take out a picture of a child that matters mm. to you. Yeah. And tell me what you want for that child. Yeah. And is what's happening right now going to lead to that? And so I try really hard to make it very personal and to help them come to the discovery that mm, maybe what we're doing isn't exactly right. Yeah, I love that thought. Yeah, it is a tough question for sure. And, you know, I, I keep going back to, I have a very treasured friend and colleague who lives here in Hawaii. He's, his name is Robert Landau and he's has his own education consultancy, although he was in education administration internationally for more than 40 years. And lately he's been talking, Carmen, a lot about his granddaughter, Soleil, who is six okay. years old, right? And that's what he's saying. He's saying what you're saying, which is Soleil is here. Soleil is going to graduate from high school in 2040. What are we doing to make sure that Soleil really matters? And that's the key. And her, you know, at the first moment that she can raise her hand, she's going to say, hey, you all, (laughs) like, what are you doing to create environments where I can be really engaged What are you doing to help me believe that going to school is a joyful thing? And I totally agree with you that the boards of education out there just need to know. And that kind of goes back to the, you know, PBS NewsHour, that when the media begins to cover these things, which is what I'm attempting to do with this podcast, then we get a little bit closer. So that's great. That's right. Uh, So, Carmen, this is our final question at the end of this awesome conversation I love to end episodes by having guests give a shout out to a giant upon whose shoulders they stand, a guide, a mentor, a coach, a very special and influential someone. So Stu Silberman has been this person in your life. So who is Stu and what were and are the things he has had you thinking about over the years? In what ways is Stu always in your metaphorical Dr. Carmen Coleman backpack, if you will? Yeah, so ironically, Stu was hired as superintendent in a district in Kentucky while I was still in college, and it just so happened that my roommate's father was vice chair for the board who hired him, Hmm. and he started telling me about this superintendent they had hired and how, how, what a big thinker he was, and And this was at the time when all the assessment and accountability, the high stakes measures were really ramping up. Mm. And yet, Stu, I remember he was, they were featured on Good Morning America because his one priority was that every child would have piano lessons. Mm. Wow. And so, fast forward, I was hired to open an elementary school. And so I reached out to Stu, who I had still never met in person. Mm, mm -hmm. And I said, I I don't know you, but here's how we're connected. I followed your journey. I'm opening an elementary school. I know that you have opened new ones in your district. Is there someone I can talk to? Mm. And he connected me. And then fast forward again, Stu eventually came to a district closer to me in Kentucky and he hired me there to be the director of elementary schools. But mm. what, and so sitting around that leadership table with him, the driving question for Stu always was what is it that children from affluent families get to do and have? What are the experiences mm. that other kids don't? Mm-hmm. And that's how he would always pose questions. What can we do 
to try to make up that gap. So I shared the example of the world language teacher Mm -hmm. in every school, right? Kids from more affluent families often get to travel. They often are exposed to different cultures and different, you know, that was always Stu's driving question. Mm. And that really made an impact on me and has continued to all these years later. I, I don't make a career move without talking to him. Mm, wow. Wow. That's awesome. So yeah. what we'll do, Carmen, is that we'll dedicate this episode to Stu. Oh, and it's just fantastic to think about having a mentor like that who always poses those big questions, especially an equity question yeah. like that. And I love that. And so Carmen, yeah. thank you so much for this conversation today. Wow. What a blast this has oh, been. Thank you. I really appreciate the time and and it's been a real joy to spend the last couple of weeks deep diving into your work and your life. And so we at What School Could Be are cheering you on 100%, 1,000%, and everybody who's doing the good, deeper learning work in Kentucky and really everywhere around the country. And so thank you. Thank you for all of that and thank you for the time today. Thank you so much. My editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and the author of the best-selling book, What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, The most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care.